And in order to start our Christmas off well, I just want to help you do that by asking you to ask yourself an important question. And you'll have to bear with me. It'll make more sense as we go on. But in order to get our Christmas started, right, to appreciate what Christmas is about, I'd like to, you to ask yourself, who or what is my worst enemy? Doesn't really strike you with Christmas cheer to begin with, and I understand that. But I want you to ask yourself that question for two main reasons. Number one is that the, in the Christian story, Christmas time didn't happen on December 25th originally, but the season that we celebrate as Christmas, the coming of Jesus, is a time of destiny for humankind. It's a time of destiny for humanity. Piggybacking on that, number two, the reason why I want you to ask yourself that question is because how you define who your enemy is will determine ultimately what your destiny is. And I know that that sounds like a lot to put in one little basket. Like, how is my destiny tied to who my enemy is? Isn't my destiny tied with who my best friends are or who my connections are or what my career might be or even the good choices that I make in life? And I'm here to tell you that those things are important, but there's nothing more important than how you answer the question, who is my worst enemy? And so if you're having a hard time thinking about one because you're just so full of Christmas cheer and maybe because you're Canadian, right? We're, we're kind of polite. We're a little bit, we're, we're tolerant of each other and that's good. But I want to help you with a couple things. If you're having trouble really discerning who might be an enemy of mine, I'll give you some examples. So if you're a, if you're a political liberal, we found out that Stephen Harper was the ultimate enemy. He was the ultimate antithesis to everything good if you're a liberal. Well, on the other hand, if you're a good conservative, then, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau must be the ultimate enemy because of the way he's stood against this and that, right? If you're a small business owner, it's high taxation and high regulation, stifling your ability to succeed, to grow your business, to hire staff, right? That's an enemy for sure. Let's make it a bit more personal. What if you're an unhappy wife or husband? Perhaps it's your spouse, that person that you wake up to every single day thinking, if only my life would be better. If you're the victim of abuse, you might think in your mind it's your abuser or the person or people who enabled your abuser to carry out what they did to you. Maybe it's getting easier to envision who you might consider an enemy. An enemy. If you're a capitalist, it's environmentalists and environmentalism, right? Always stifling economic growth. If you're a globalist, then it's definitely President Trump. So from the trivial to the profound, this is meant to illustrate that we all can think of an enemy. We can all think of somebody or something that ultimately stands in the way of our happiness, of our progress, of our sense of freedom and peace. And the reason is because we all face common battles. We're all living the same life. We're all living in the same flesh, the same circumstances, the same weather. And it's easy to find an enemy. It's easy to find uh, the thing that creates those battles in our lives. And when we think about those battles, when we think about those conflicts, don't we want relief? Don't we want the burden to be released? Don't we want that battle to go away? Don't we want that conflict out of our lives? We want some kind of deliverance. And so what does Christmas have to do with thinking and all this negative talk about enemies? I promise you I'm not just on a negative trip. What does Christmas have to do with it? Well, the Christmas story invites you and invites me to recalibrate and reevaluate 
who or what you consider an enemy. In other words, it's going to alter your perception of what really makes an enemy out of you. So we need to redefine, we need to think and evaluate. So what if somebody you trusted very closely came to you and said, I have a way to unconditionally release you from that conflict, from that enemy, from that one thorn in your side, from that one battle that you're so tired of facing. And let's be honest, I mean, I think as Canadians, we're probably a little bit weary of the fake plastic happiness that's tacked on to Christmas. Time to get together with the family, pretend everything's okay. Buy presents for people you don't otherwise see the rest of the year. I think as Canadians, we can admit that we're a little bit tired of the fake. And so if we really want to find out what Christmas is about, I think this is the way to do it. So what if somebody came and offered you relief from that freedom? Who among us would pass up on that opportunity? Who among us would say, no, I think this makes me who I am. I want to keep fighting this fight. I don't think many of us would reasonably say that. Because most reasonable people, most government ministries and offices, the UN, even small family meetings over conflict are all trying for the same good. They're all trying to do the same good. And you know what that is? It's to bring peace. It's to end conflict. It's to bring harmony between people, right? Isn't that what all of these things are trying to do? The question is, are they successful? Are they successful? Are we successful? I want to read to you a passage from Luke chapter 1. We've already been reading from Luke a little bit. This text is spoken by a guy who is actually the pre-uncle of Jesus. He was an uncle to Jesus. They were related. His name, Zechariah. And we saw in our little play that the angel came and told Mary that you would have a son without having um, marital relations with Joseph. And she believed the angel. Well, here's a guy who had a similar vision of an angel, and he decided not to believe, and he kind of doubted it. And he was forced to stay silent for a long time. He had to write with a chalkboard as if somebody had jaw surgery or something. He had to write on a chalkboard because the angel had silenced him. This guy, Zechariah. But when God finally opens his mouth and he gets to speak, this is before his own son, because his wife was having a child, whose name ended up being John the Baptist. And his wife's cousin, Mary, was also pregnant at the same time. A lot of you know what that's like. It's exciting to be pregnant at the same time with a friend or family member. They're going through the same issues together, and so they're excited. But Zechariah speaks out before either of the babies are born. And Zechariah, the father of the unborn John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied. And he listened to what he said. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So that's what Zechariah says. That's what Zechariah says about the coming of Jesus Christ. Because he goes on to say, my son, you, will be the prophet of the Most High. So John the Baptist was going to go ahead and get people ready for this Savior. 
And later, angels came and visited, and we saw this in our little presentation. The angels came and they said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And this message we need to recognize came about 2,000 years ago to a people called Israel, the Jews. It came to them in a time where politically they could not have hated their political system more than they did. They were ruled by a pagan Gentile nation called Rome. Knew nothing of God. And here are God's people being oppressed by Rome. They hated their leadership. If you're unhappy with the situation and you can't wait till the election, this is exactly how Israel felt, except that there was no election on the horizon. There was no new People's Party of Canada. They were stuck with what they had. And here's the language in here. He says, we're gonna, he, he says that God is raising up a horn of salvation. Do you know what a horn is? It's a symbol of power and victory. It's a symbol of the guarantee of God's promise. It's a symbol of the definitiveness with which God is going to free his people from, what did he say? The hand of those who hate them. From their enemies. This is why I'm having us think in this language. Because to understand Christmas, we have to understand the concept of an enemy. And so he speaks in this language of power and victory. So that's the kind of language that we look for when we're hoping for you know, a new prime minister or a presidential candidate. We want that kind of guarantee. Raise up, raise up that horn of salvation. Raise up that horn of victory. God is saying, I have the horn of victory. and I'm going to do what I said. Yet here's the amazing part. Christmas comes. God radically shifts the focus. He shifts the ground from underneath the feet of the Jews. He shifts the focus. And here's why. That angel that appeared to Mary and Joseph, like we saw in that video, came and said, you will name him Jesus. That'll be the name that you give him because he will save his people from their, didn't say enemies. He will save his people from their sin. Why the different word? Why the different concept of an enemy? The reason is because what God is communicating to his people and what he is communicating to you and I on this very night is that there is a worse slavery and there is a more powerful enemy than anything that we talked about in that introduction. Than anything that you can imagine as being your earthly or temporary enemy. There is something much worse, much more destructive, much more powerful, and it's called sin. It's called sin. We don't need a fancy definition of sin. I'm going to read from the Bible, but all of us know what it feels like, what it tastes like. We know what sin is like. It's in every part of what we do. It's in every relationship that we have. It's in every conflict that we experience. Listen to how the Bible talks about us without God. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. You know what that's like to sit alone and stew in your hatred? <laughs> Hated by others and hating one another. That's the picture of humanity in that it's slavery to sin. In other words, my friends, the problem is not out there. The problem is not systematic Patriarchy. The problem is not capitalism. The problem is not globalism. The problem is not socialism. You may have problems and disagree with these things on various levels. But the problem, in essence, with humanity is not out there. It's in here. 
See, you and I, without this Savior, without this deliverance, you and I are slaves before we get out of bed in the morning. It doesn't take opening the paper. It doesn't take picking up the phone or answering a text on your cell. You are enslaved before you start your day. And you're not enslaved to a system. You're enslaved to sin, your passions, your envy, your malice, your hatred. Do you know what's worse about sin than even that? Sin is your worst enemy because it separates you from the living God. Verse 74 in the passage we read says that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might, what's the result of being freed from sin? Might serve him without fear. See, when you're enslaved to sin, when you're a slave to the things that you hate, when you're enslaved to your passions, you do not know God. You cannot serve him without fear. You cannot think about God without your conscience being bent and twisted. And it's a terrible feeling. You all know that feeling, whether you're in Christ or whether you're not tonight. You know what it feels like to have your conscience just bent and twisted, knowing that you do not have that relationship with God. You cannot serve him without fear. Many people stay away from the church. They stay away from preaching. They stay away from the Bible because they're afraid of what it'll be like to come face to face with God. There's no joy. You know why? Because you're enslaved and separated from God. That's what's worse about sin. So have you recalibrated? Have you redefined? Have you reevaluated what really makes your life terrible? It's not that spouse. I'm not, gonna, I'm not minimizing the struggles that we have in life, but the worst enemy we have, the worst kind of slavery we are in is slavery to sin, which begs maybe a painful question, but I think an obvious one. Who then can save us from this kind of slavery? Because the other kinds that we talked about in the introduction, they seem accessible. Ooh, maybe it's Andrew Shear. Not that any of you maybe think that or not, but we can look at our earthly problems and say, I can see a solution. If so-and-so would just say this to me, or if that would just happen, if this would just go away, then my life would be better. We can see ways that our, life will get, our lives will get better with things that we can handle and, and, and figure out. What about the sin that's inside of you? What about that secret, shameful, inward, sticky sin? Who's going to fix that? It's not going to be the liberals. It's not going to be the conservatives. It's not even going to be your spouse, no matter how fantastic they are. Even if they deal with all their problems, they're not going to fix that. So who can? Who can? And for that, I want to look at our friend Simeon. There's another guy in this story that is amazing. He's my dude. Uh, I preached on him last year. I love this guy. He's older. It says that he was a holy and devout man. This is in Luke chapter 2. It was read by uh, Kevin earlier. It said that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, which is the Lord's sent Messiah, the chosen one, the Savior. And he came in the Spirit into the temple one day. He just came to worship. Just coming to see God and worship him. And Simeon comes into the temple and guess who was there? Jesus and his parents. They had brought the little baby. There's a little baby here tonight, Jude. About the same age, actually. Tiny little Jude. So, so Simeon takes this baby Jesus in his arms. I love this. It's kind of like Uncle Simeon. And he was waiting for God to keep his promise. You know why? Because Simeon knew the promises that God had made to free Israel, to give them freedom from slavery, from their enemies. And he was waiting for that. And when he picked up baby Jesus, this is what he said. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. In other words, die. He knows he's getting old. 
You're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. Remember, he's holding an eight-day-old baby. My eyes have seen your salvation. I have totally witnessed it right here in this little baby. He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people, Israel. Here's the thing. He saw and identified the Savior that he needed. He identified the person who could free Israel from that worst kind of slavery. He saw and he identified correctly. This is the salvation. This is the Messiah. There is no other. Here's the other incredible part. In this, the freedom that Jesus brings is not brought by overturning a social system. It's not, over, it's not by overturning a political structure. The salvation that Jesus brings is not an earthly, political, military, social, economic revolution. It's none of those things. It's none of those things. And there's a hint. There's a hint about how he would accomplish this in the passage. He says to the parents, he turns, he blesses Jesus, and then he turns to the parents and he says, For a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Even as this eight-day-old cute little baby was in his arms, Simeon looked ahead in the Holy Spirit and he said, Mom and Dad, a sword is going to pierce your soul. What? This is supposed to be a happy day. You know why? Because that Savior did not stay a baby. That Savior grew up and paid a price for freedom. The sword that this man was speaking of was witnessing the death of their son on the cross at the hands of the Romans. A sword will pierce your soul so that the hearts of many will be revealed. What he's saying is that there is a price, there is a cost to this kind of freedom. It's not a political or social cost. It is a material and spiritual one. It's death. That's because sin's power can only be broken by one force. A force that is higher and greater than the power of slavery. And it's the power of God himself in obedience, in purity, and righteousness. Sin is a terrible and destructive master. And yet it is defeated in the work of Jesus Christ at the end of his life. See, there is no Christmas joy. There is no Christmas story if you do not know your enemy. If you do not identify sin inside your own heart as your worst enemy, as your separation from God, you cannot receive the joy of the Messiah, the one who will set you free. Now, as I said before, I'm, I'm a little bit worried maybe that you don't, you think that God might not care about all the other issues. You think, well, that's, that's great. I'd like him to deal with my sin, but what about my spouse? What about my grades? What about my college application? What about my boss who's insane? Yeah. You know, what about, the, what about the economic inequality? What about the struggles that I actually have? The Bible talks in the same kind of language about those enemies. We know that the Bible speaks of Jesus after he died and paid the price for your freedom to free you from your slavery. That he went up and he rules from a heavenly throne. And one by one, he is subduing every enemy under his feet. Until the Bible says there's one last enemy of man that he will crush. You know, what, you know what's your other worst enemy? Death. Because it's coming to us all and none of us are going to beat it. Death wins. What's that saying? Death is undefeated. If 
pure sports person. That's the last enemy that Christ is going to defeat. In other words, one day even death will not be able to conquer humankind, humanity. Jesus will even subdue death itself, which means that Christ is fixing everything. He's renewing everything. He does care about the struggles in your life. He does care about the relationships and the problems and the systems. But you know what? None of that gets fixed until the hearts of people get fixed. Why would you expect a prime minister to do the right thing when he's a slave to sin? How do you expect your kid's figure skating coach to be fair if they're a slave to sin? People are, people are kind very much so and very often and it's true. But truthfully, we need our hearts changed. We need to be freed from sin before anything in the world can change, right? And so we need to know the enemy. We need to see Jesus and behold him. And we need to embrace him if we want to enjoy the joy of Christmas. And so as I promised, and I'll close with this, as I promised, how you define your enemy will determine your destiny for good or for ill. Simeon includes this in his blessing. He says that, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This child is appointed to be a destiny maker. This child is a destiny maker, which means that humanity, in its stream of consciousness, as it moves along, every single human being will come in contact with this iceberg and will split this one obstacle in life. And I don't use the word obstacle negatively. Everybody comes in contact with Christ. And he divides humanity. He's appointed for the fall and rising of many. There are no third options with Jesus. All of humanity is rescued or lost on the basis of God's salvation. And so God has now shed a light in your heart. God has prepared this in your presence this evening. If you already believe this, then I challenge you to, to reconstitute yourself to recognize that sin is still your worst enemy. If you have been freed from it, praise God. But the promise of salvation is broad and universal to anybody who will come. And yet the way that we access God's promise is narrow. There is one name. There is one path. There is one sin-bearing, slave-freeing person, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Bible says that every promise of God finds its yes in that name. There is no other way. That's not because Christianity is exclusive and it is just intolerant. It's because that's what Jesus said. There is no other way, and he is appointed for the rising and the fall of many. If this message is new to you, or if it's hard to digest or understand, I, I, I understand that not everybody believes this or even wants to. But I do want to ask you that if you feel a burden to slavery, if there is something within you groaning about the incongruency of what you want and how you're getting there in life, and your inability to deal with your own sin, God is presenting an opportunity to you in this hour right now to come and to rise in Christ. If you feel this burden of slavery and like a bird from a cage desire to fly and serve God without fear, then I invite you to rise in life and freedom in Jesus Christ. For you will either rise or you will fall in sin and death and separation from God. 
There's no third option. There's no third way. God before us is putting salvation. He is offering it freely. And you know what? That verse we read about how hating and being hated and how bad it is. There's a second part to that verse that I'd like to read for you. In the first section, the writer of that passage says, Boy, without, without God, we're a mess. But then in verse 4, right after, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might now become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that's the difference. That's the difference. Verse 3, we were hating. We were being hated. It was rough. We were stewing in our malice. But when God appeared in Christ, he richly poured out his blessing through his Holy Spirit, giving us freedom, making us heirs of those promises, being freed from all that entangles us. All of this is appointed in the name of Jesus Christ. He alone is appointed for the rising and the fall of many. And so I want to ask you, will you evaluate your life? Will you identify your enemy correctly? Will you repent from that sin? Will you rise in Jesus Christ? Will you live? And will you go free? For if you do, you will never look at Christmas the same. You will never think about it the same. You will see in Christmas the gift of freedom. The gift of a Savior who released you from all your bondage to sin and brought you to a relationship with God where you can serve Him without fear. If you are tormented by sin, come to Christ. Come to Christ, for He is appointed for your rising if you will come to Him.